Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are just in the early part of Chapter 6 of the podcast on lambda encodings. Lambda encodings are ways of representing data as functions. And so they get their name lambda encodings because the language in which these were initially explored and most commonly considered, I suppose, is lambda calculus. So in lambda calculus, we are going to try to represent our data, like lists or binary search trees or this kind of thing, numbers even, as lambda abstractions, some kind of lambda terms. But in general, we're talking about representing data as functions. And what functions are these that could represent our data? Well, they're the functions that implement the data's interface. We use the data in some way or other in our programs. And so there's some kind of interface to that data. And we're going to have functions that implement the interface that will stand for the data itself. You know, normally you think of the data as just this kind of static thing. And then there's some features of the programming language that let you interact with it. Like in a, in a functional language, you think of your data as just a tree structure in memory. If you have a data type, like a data type for lists or binary trees or something. And your, the language gives you the ability to do things with that data, like create it or uh, analyze it using pattern matching or recurse over it. In fact, that's really pretty much the basic interface you have to inductive data types in a language like Haskell or OCaml or something like that. Okay, don't, you know, inductive in Haskell is not correct exactly, but it's not correct, but because they're not uh, inductive types, but um, because of laziness. But in any event, the point is uh, in these languages, you have data types and you can, you can create new data, you can apply the constructors to make new data. And you can pattern match on data to sort of take it apart and look at it and see what it looks like. And you can recurse over it um, as maybe as part of pattern matching or a separate operation from pattern matching. So, um, so there are the operations you want to do to the data. Are We usually, in a programming language, you think of them as sort of external to the data. The data is there, and the language gives you these facilities for doing things with it. But imagine that you kind of push that, <laughs> you kind of mush that external capability into the data itself. So instead of having this thing that just sits there and then, you know, that's the data and then you kind of look at it and do stuff with it outside, imagine that you've kind of changed things around. So now the data says, oh, you would like to take a look at, you know, my innards? Sure, go ahead. Give me a function to that you want to apply and we'll, you know, I'll, I'll take care of applying that function and giving you the results. So for example, you know, you're asking a, a list, is the list empty? Or does it have a head and a tail? Um, you know, you can answer this question sort of externally to the data using pattern matching in a language like Haskell or OCaml or something. But uh, you can, in the lambda encoding or function encoding viewpoint, the function itself answers that question. You know, you can ask the, the, the functional representation of the data, are you the empty list or do you have a head and a tail? And, you know, the one simple way that you can start to get a sense for how this would work is how could we provide, this, how could we implement this interface? Well, the data simply takes two callbacks in that case. You, if you want to inquire, you know, are you empty or do you have a head and a tail? Then the data is now a higher order function that takes in, uh, a, you know, some result to return if it's empty 
and uh, if it's not empty, it's it takes then it, it oh, sorry, it takes in a, a value to use if it's empty, and it takes in a function that accepts a head and a tail and does something with them. In the case that to to be called by the data itself, in the case when the data does have a head and a tail. So we sort of I I have this visual sensation of like you know our visual um, idea of sort of flipping it the universe inside out like take the uh, I, I I don't know hopefully that sort of conveys something to you you know those kind of weird sort of mushy kind of toys that you can kind of like a there's like a they're like a torus or something you can kind of rotate them in and kind of push them in I don't know sorry I didn't have a better <laughs> metaphor hopefully you understand what I mean um, but the features that we use in the programming language to interact with the data we now make them be internalized into the data itself. And now one interesting, there are several interesting fact, things about this basic idea of how uh, functional encoding or one of the sort or the other would work by kind of pushing stuff into the data, functionality into the data. Well, one thing that's sort of interesting is uh, now if you, you know, so now you're not relying on that external machinery to interact with the data. The data's got it all inside it. Now, Perhaps inside the data, you know, behind this abstraction that is enforced by, say, a static type for the data, behind that abstraction, there is, you know, somehow or other, you have to provide the same functionality. So maybe you're just using the programming language's features like pattern matching or recursion or something to do that. You can imagine kind of a, <coughs> excuse me, kind of a, you know, sort of a straw man lambda functional encoding that said, yeah, um, you're not going to see any data, but the data is really there. I'm just going to program with it only by um, in this sort of functional interface. But I'm not going to. But the, I'm not actually trying to eliminate my data. Let's say I'm just sort of hiding it. And so the functions that say, "Oh, you know, I'll take some callbacks for whether it's empty or has a head and a tail," you know, the function that implements that higher order um, interface is going to just say, oh, okay, I take those callbacks in. I'm going to pattern match on my hidden internal data to decide what I should do. And if it's empty, then I'm going to use the first callback. And if it's got a head and a tail, I'm going to use the second. You know, so you're, you didn't get rid of pattern matching on this kind of straw man functional encoding. It's all still there. You're just using it behind the scenes, and you've erected this, in this case, sort of pointless functional interface um, to... Uh, just to kind of mediate access to the data. Um, and I mean, you could imagine some kind of reasons for him to do that. Like if you wanted to um, log all the pattern, you know, say you have a program that, and you decide, oh, I would like to log all the pattern matches that happen, and I just want to know how many I'm doing or something like that. You know, rather than going and changing your code um, to do logging, you could change your code to use a functional interface, and then you could do whatever you wanted at that functional interface, like log those kind of things. That's not really a... Um, to my, I'm not aware of that as being a particularly interesting case, you know, use case or anything like that. But um, just as an example, um, of course, the real interest with the functional coding is where you say, I've got some other way. Like once I've internalized these operations inside the data itself, maybe I've got a different way of doing them where I don't need those external features. You know, so I don't need pattern matching and recursion. That somehow they're they kind of. You know, if all I'm using pattern matching or recursion for is to operate on data, and if somehow this move of flipping the universe inside out and sticking all that functionality into the data, if that if doing that means I don't need 
um, pattern matching or recursion outside that data anywhere, then maybe I don't need them at all in my language. And that's exactly the path that we've taken in Sedil and the path of a sort of pure lambda encodings is that you don't you don't need those operations. You don't need pattern matching. You don't need recursion anymore. They're all implemented in the pure lambda calculus, the pure type lambda calculus, in inside the data. Um, and that's, that's pretty amazing. And so we will talk uh, next time about how to do that. And in particular, it's time to start talking about the church encoding, which is the first, you know, historically first, and also sort of conceptually a very good starting point for understanding lambda encodings. And so that will be for next time. Okay, thank you for listening.